I'm Dr. Pat Besu, the host of Focus on Cancer, a show where we answer the questions that cancer patients have about any aspect of their care. On today's show, I'm particularly excited to welcome a colleague of mine, Dr. Jeffrey Metz. Dr. Metz is the Chief of Medicine at the Georgia Hospital for Cancer Treatment Centers of America. He is also the national leader of the COVID-19 Prevention Task Force. Welcome, Dr. Metz. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Basu. On behalf of my team and I, it's an absolute privilege to be here with you today. Well, thank you. Uh, let's let's get right into it by acknowledging it's been a incredibly uh, trying time for uh, for us as a nation and as a society. Uh, you know, it, on top of the COVID pandemic, clearly there's been um, you know massive unrest spurred by the. Uh, the, the tragic and horrific death of Mr. George Floyd uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, it has really, uh, you know, brought to the forefront uh, the the incredible challenges and the the massive uh, progress that we need to make as a society in terms of uh, stopping uh, institutional injustice and and uh, eliminating racism. And uh, you know, reducing abuse of power—it's uh, it, a really important and critical uh, time in our nation. And and certainly, you know, we're all um, you know looking for a a better, more perfect union. Uh, one of the staples to that is obviously, uh, you know, goes back to our founding fathers: the ability to peacefully protest. Uh, it's been with us for a couple of hundred years, and uh, and certainly we stand by that right. As we've seen these uh, these protests, uh, you know, rightfully so, uh, from a peaceful perspective, um, it's brought a lot of people together uh, in close spaces. And so, although you know, clearly the uh, the right to protest and the cause might be just, I'd like to get your thoughts on what that impact might be in terms of the lack of social distancing, and, and could it be um, you know dangerous in terms of uh, you know COVID nineteen. Yeah, people are going to do what's right. They're going to stand up against racism and against injustice. And at the same time, as we move through the pandemic, we're in a phase where uh, there's alert fatigue. Uh, people in the country have been on high alert for a prolonged period of time. And as, as people are social, that's very difficult. So we're seeing these uh, relaxations across uh, the nation on social distancing. And large gatherings are happening, both for protests as well as uh, socially. So the challenge remains to keep our focus on social distancing, even in the face of standing up. And so I, I think that uh, when patients and people aren't able to socially distance or they're unwilling to socially distance, that, that the, the mask becomes our, our best defense against COVID. COVID sees all of these people coming together um, as an opportunity, an opportunity to, to spread disease among them, you know, as evidenced in DC where several members of the National Guard were actually infected with COVID. So I think as we look at the number of deaths that we're currently sitting at, about 115,000, uh, heading to 116,000 in the country and the possibility of going up another 100,000 lives lost in our country by September, by some estimates, we have to take social distancing and masking very seriously to be effective. Well, I love that perspective. I, I love your perspective that people are going to do what's right, but it sounds like you're saying 
absolutely do what's right, but you can do so still in a in a safe manner. You can do so, uh, but you know, wearing a mask and 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 maintaining, uh, you know, some of the precautions that that prevent this. Uh, along those lines, look, we we've seen um, not only, uh, you know, the the protests against. Uh, racism and injustice, not only here in the United States, but we've now seen them across the world, uh, from you know London and Paris to, to Berlin to, to other places. Uh, t- talk to us about. Uh, there's been a wide variety in terms of the uh, the incidence and prevalence of, of COVID-19 across not only the states in the United States but across the world. What 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 drives that? Are there any you know takeaways or trends that you might uh, comment on? Yeah, I think one of the things that comes to mind is the testing. Um, you know, countries, um, you know, that are, are testing more patients. Uh, actually, if you look at it, Denmark, I think, is testing about uh, 130 people for every uh, 1,000 um, people they have in their population. Um, Italy is probably about 70. United States and New Zealand are in the 60s. Look at a place like India. Um, they have 1.3 billion people uh, live in the country, as does China. But India is uh, testing currently about uh, four in every, uh, you know, 1,000 people that, that are in the population in their country. You know, I guess the concern is on the early side, there were significant lockdowns that were thought to be pretty effective. It might have delayed where they are in their process versus us and, and what we see here. So I think it's something that we're going to have to follow closely. And, and certainly it, it's concerning. And Dr. Metz, uh, back here at home, in terms of uh, you know the the progression in in COVID nineteen, are you seeing certain areas that might be coming down in terms of their their COVID nineteen prevalence, and and others that that might be rising? Uh, can you kind of give a, a general overview of of the uh, you know how it looks uh, here in June across the the U.S. Yeah, well, particularly after, you know, we've had some relaxation uh, socially uh, from a social distancing standpoint and over the holiday weekend and, and with the gatherings that we're having from protesting and such, we're watching very closely to see how many states are going to have an increase. And there's evidence to suggest that maybe over half um, are already starting to see those signs. So uh, some states may actually have to slow down some of the relaxing measures. Uh, very concerning, something that we're following closely every day. We like to look at the 14-day average. That gives you the data that's been um, you know, teased out, so it's more accurate versus you know data that's uh, coming in over only the last several days. So that's a key part of of the analysis. Well, well, Dr. Metz, uh, you know what, one of the things that that I'm very passionate about, and I've been speaking a lot about, is something that I refer to called the the shadow curve. And it, it first of all acknowledges that that COVID nineteen is a uh, you know is a is a horrible uh, pandemic here uh, that's affecting us this year, but it really emphasizes not losing sight of the fact that there are monstrous diseases out there that we cannot turn our backs on. Uh, certainly, cancer, certainly uh, cardiac disease, um, you know, stroke, and and other major chronic diseases that kill millions of people. In fact, around the world, uh, every single year, uh, 10 million people will die of cancer uh, every uh, every year. And uh, just here in America, every single year, 1.7, 1.8 million Americans will be diagnosed uh, with this horrible disease of cancer. 
But what concerns me is this idea I call the shadow curve, which is um, we're focused only on the curve, so to speak, of COVID. But as a society, as a as a public health system, we could be losing uh, sight of this monstrous enemy, uh, in this case, cancer or heart disease. And, and some of the evidence around that is is uh, was recently published uh, in the last few weeks that uh, mammograms were down almost 90% during uh, the COVID pandemic. Colonoscopies were down 90%. Pap smears were down 80%. Uh, prostate screening was down 60%. And we saw nearly a 50% reduction in cancer diagnoses, uh, in, in cardiac and other neurological conditions. You and I, as, as physicians, as experts in public health, we know that those diseases are not uh, going away. They're just not being caught. And when they don't get caught, they either kill more patients or they they make our lives you know worse off well what i'm trying to prevent is the study being written three years from now that looks back and says boy uh you know millions of people uh you know around the world died because their care was disrupted and tens of millions had a worse uh, outcome or a worse quality of life because we didn't get to their their heart disease in time. We didn't uh, catch their cancer in stage one. We caught it in stage three. Uh, what what are your thoughts? Do you do you kind of agree with me that that this shadow curve might be uh, an area of concern if we if we don't pay attention to um, you know all these missed cancer diagnoses and missed screenings and and other other conditions. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you uh, more, actually. You know, screening is essential to detect disease early. That gives us more treatment options. And just to your point, when you catch it later, your options decrease. I, I really think it's essential for cancer patients to get the diagnoses as early as possible so that they can make these challenging decisions on what's the best for their care. I think it's important that the patients with heart disease are getting diagnosed. I think we have a, a real significant uh, problem that doesn't capture the attention right now because, like you said, COVID's getting the attention. So, as a medical community, it's really on us to raise that awareness, have those conversations, so that the people don't miss their mammogram. We have to challenge them to to stay focused on on what's right in front of them that has to be done. Yeah, you know, Dr. Metz, I was just talking to a colleague at another hospital. Um, he had a patient that just before the COVID pandemic had had some screening tests done, uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, those those indic uh, indicated cancer, the patient didn't get the follow-up, very recently came back, and in his medical opinion, had this patient's cancer been treated three months ago instead of the therapy that they're about to go through now, uh, the treatment would have been faster, uh, more straightforward and with a greater probability of of survival um, than than the you know the course of therapy that the patient's about to go through. Do you uh, do, do you worry that we might start seeing more and more of those of those cases that were uh, you know disrupted or delayed? I, I mean, for for you and I, the bedrock of cancer therapy has always been catch it early, treat it consistently, and treat it comprehensively. Are you uh, are you worried that around the country that if this continues, we might see more of those cases where we look back and say, boy, we we should have caught those a couple of months ago. And now we're, you know, now this patient's kind of, uh, you know, behind the eight ball. 
Yeah, I, I really am. I mean, I, I think it speaks volumes that we're having the conversation that you're raising awareness for the topic. We have to take this topic out on a larger level and, and raise the awareness across the country. So that's a key part of, of getting those screening programs back fully functional. You know, just like we've got, um, you know, elective surgeries are, are, are rolling back out across the country. We've got to be able to do the same thing with screening. We need to make it happen as quickly as possible. Uh, failure to do so will make those numbers astronomical. Well, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, along those lines, I think one of the main topics that I wanted to get into with you, uh, Dr. Metz, is, is what are cancer centers like CTCA doing to protect patients and visitors and staff uh, from the spread of COVID? Yeah, so again, with the concept that we know we have asymptomatic disease, we have sustained community spread, and that cancer and COVID don't mix well together, cancer centers are trying to keep COVID out and away from cancer patients. We do this with robust screening. It starts on the telephone before a patient ever shows up. Um, patients that um, have evidence of COVID, uh, patients that are having active infections should not be in a cancer center right now. Employees that work in cancer centers that have evidence of infection should not be in a cancer center right now. So it starts by having this type of screening. We then have a single point of entry for patients when they come to the cancer center. Um, so they are screened again. Our screening again is redundant screening. And that includes temperature checks when they come into that single point of entry. We use universal masking so that uh, any patient that shows up, any employee that's on center should have and will have a mask. If they don't have one, we provide the mask for them so that we can you know, really provide the safest environment possible. Uh, our our uh, employees that can work remote, we have uh, initiated a very comprehensive remote working from home uh, approach to try to thin out the number of people that are in the center at any one time. We've decreased the number of visitors. We've eliminated non-essential travel for all of our employees. So it, it's really about providing the safest environment possible. Uh, the other thing that we've done is uh, rapid turnaround time testing uh, using uh, several different testing strategies, but we're able to get uh, quick results. I mean, you know, sometimes patients have cancer and the cancer can mimic COVID. It might be that it's a metastatic process to the lung. It could be that uh, they are under chemotherapy or immunotherapy that can mimic, you know, fever and shortness of breath, basically inflammation uh, processes going on in the lung. So for us to have rapid testing, we can identify them quickly and get to the accurate diagnosis and initiate appropriate treatment strategies for them. We also use our rapid testing for uh, all of our patients prior to surgery. If anyone's undergoing an aerosol generating procedure, we test them in advance to make certain that we don't have anybody that is COVID positive go forward with the surgery until they're COVID negative. Well, Dr. Metz, that's that's very helpful. Sounds like you're doing a ton uh, to to ensure that separation of that safety. Let's talk a bit more specifically about rapid testing. Sounds like that's one of the keys you described. Uh, first of all, can you describe for our listeners how, how rapid is the test? What does it entail? How, how quickly do the results come back? So if you look to the early periods of COVID, uh, the testing would take anywhere from one day to eight days. During that time, anybody that's been tested, you have to assume 
that they have COVID. You have to treat them as if they do. That means you use a significant amount of personal protective equipment, PPE, to provide that safe environment. So uh, when you have five, six, seven, eight, ten patients that are under investigation, your PPE burn rate goes up significantly. If you can get a rapid test, and for us, uh, the test we use takes uh, about an hour. It really takes about 15 minutes, but the turnaround time, transportation, collection of the sample, all those things, within an hour, we have an answer. And so, uh, one, you eliminate all of the PPE. Two, you make the correct diagnosis, and then you can initiate appropriate treatment strategies for the patient. You know, and so much of the success for COVID is about uh, identification, isolation, contact tracing, testing. So by being able to do all of those things, it puts you in a more successful position. I also like to look at our surgical patients. Patients that are about to have surgery, they're having major surgery, they get tested. If they were positive and they were to go through their surgery, it puts the patient at risk for disease progression. Uh, it puts all of the staff uh, at risk to contact and or spread the disease, even though they're taking maximal amounts of safety um, uh, implications already. It, 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 it adds that extra layer and we find our patients really appreciate it. Now to collect the test, it's a nasal swab. It's done very distally, right to the edge of the nose. And then um, you, you get the, the sample and you're able to send that in. And like I said, you have the results in, in less than an hour. There's also other testing that goes much deeper, nasopharyngeal um, into uh, uh, the nasopharyngeal cavity to collect the sample. A little bit more aggressive for patients. You asked about how uh, they compare We've done them both, and you know we found them to be equally effective. Well, that's terrific, and uh, and it sounds like between between some of those pillars you've described, it's been a a very sophisticated, uh, very uh, robust method of of protecting patients. Tell us a bit what's what's the if you look back now over the last few months, how successful uh, you know have have you and the team been at um, you, you know, preventing COVID at, at our hospitals uh, and, and, and ensuring it's the safest possible environment uh, for treating cancer that there that they're possibly can be? Well, you know, if, if you think about academic institutions and you think about community centers, uh, which provide outstanding, excellent care, um, and, and they have safety strategies, they're taking care of COVID patients, they're taking care of COPD, lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, trauma. You know, at a cancer center, we're focused, again, solely on cancer. And so, to your point, keeping COVID out is the, is the core strategy. Um, the rapid turnaround testing helps. It's a significant part of it. The uh, screening, the universal masking, decreasing the number of visitors, decreasing the number of people, social distancing within the center, including the, uh, you know, the waiting rooms, the common areas, our dining center, every area where you can make an impact gets looked at and addressed. So, you know, in going back to our patients that we test for surgery, we've caught subtle in advance and been able to postpone their surgery to a safer time. You might think that some of the patients would see that all of this as a little bit of an inconvenience, but we've actually found just the opposite. Our patients are very appreciative when they see all these layers of safety that they are that they're following. And so it makes a big difference to them. They feel safer and, and, and our staff feel safer. 
That's uh yeah, that's terrific. And and I you know, I know um that's gonna be you know great for for patients to hear. What should they expect, Dr. Metz, when they when they arrive at, at a CTCA facility? Can you kind of walk them through you know, start to finish, maybe what what that looks like in terms of you know the, the screening process and, and how it's different than than what they're you know used to in a pre-COVID world. Right. So the screening process for them starts again by telephone before they ever leave to come over to CTCA. So we have to be very cognizant that we give them appropriate instruction and direction. You know, are they appropriate to travel? Are they going to the closest cancer center? Uh, are they following uh, optimal safety precautions while they're traveling? Once they arrive, then they enter a, a single point of entry. We have them uh, walk through. They go through a series of questions and they have their temperature checked. And if they don't have a mask already, we then provide a mask for them. And then they uh, start their, their, um, their day. They go to their appointments. They see their medical oncologist. They see the radiation oncologist. They see their surgeon. They see the support teams that they've come to know uh, and, well, and work with. And, and can you mention specifically, have you made any changes towards, uh, you know, how many visitors uh, they can have accompany them or, or any other precautions uh, with respect to, to patient uh, visitors? Yeah, so we allow one caregiver per patient, and this will probably be in effect, in effect for some time. Um, as will the universal masking, as will the screening for some time. While we're pursuing a vaccine across the country, once we get to that point, things might start to look different. But for the foreseeable future, um, their uh, routine is going to be again screening, universal masking, and then kind of decreasing the number of people that are in the center. That includes single visitors. For our surgical patients, uh, postoperatively, we're rapidly looking to get to a position where they're able to have uh, visitors again. And so uh, in the early going, we couldn't. We could not have patients up on the uh, general surgical and medical floors. This is um, you know, something, again, that is important to patients, uh, and we've heard them. But at the same time, they understand that safety for them and those around them is the most important uh, approach that we can take. You mentioned universal masking there. Uh, can you sort of describe a, a couple of things? You know, number one, how are you doing at the hospital in terms of having enough masks? And then I want to get into some other questions related to, uh, you, you know, what types of masks or, or when patients should should have those on. But let's start with, uh, you know, how, how are you doing in terms of the adequate amount of masks and other PPE? So in the very beginning, as we were watching the pandemic spread across um, you know, Italy and Spain uh, before it came here, we gathered our materials management team, we gathered our infection control teams, we came together, we scoured the literature to really understand what um, you know, PPE conservation is, a term we hadn't really had to talk about too much in, in years past. Um, all of us in the healthcare industry have the same challenges of as far as getting access to uh, PPE gear and getting masking. So we came up with uh, the latest uh, calculations on how to understand how much we'll need, um, you know, depending on if you have a patient that's under investigation or a patient uh, uh, that would be positive. And also how many uh, encounters are gonna happen in a patient's room, how many visitors, uh, I should say how many healthcare professionals or visitors are gonna go into a patient's room. So all of those things had to be factored in. We didn't have to secure the PPE um, that we needed. 
and put ourselves in a position where we would not have any interruption. We also had to look at PPE conservation. Good examples, the N95 mask. Um, more in demand than the surgical masks. Surgical masks are much easier to come by than the N95 masks. So we found ways that we could utilize an N95 mask um, for an entire day by covering them with surgical masks and then replacing the surgical mask as we go through the day. So that's made a significant impact on our ability to obtain PPE and then go ahead and preserve PPE. That's very helpful. And and Dr. Metz, look, at a, at a larger level, th there was some uh, controversy or maybe debate at some point earlier in this process of uh, whether people should be wearing masks in public. Uh, some well-known uh, figures uh, you know, showing up in public places or hospitals without masks. What's your general guidance to, uh, first of all, let's call it kind of the American public in terms of should they be wearing masks in you know, when they go, when they go in public places, when they go to, you know, grocery shopping, what's your suggestion there as a, uh, as not only a cancer care expert, but, but also a, a you know, an expert in, in uh, the prevention of, uh, of, you know, of, of COVID-19. Early on, we adopted the universal masking policy. We were strong advocates for it, even before um, a, a, we sold that across the medical community. So much so we actually had artisans craft and send masks over when the surgical masks uh, were uh, in demand. Once the surgical masks became more readily available, you know, this is what we use in our patient encounters. But the artisan masks uh, in, in the general public have a high value. I think the brightest minds that we have in the medical community have agreed that social distancing is the first thing and then masking is the second component. Obviously, you know, robust testing and um, uh, contact tracing strategies and isolation are all important parts of being affected against COVID. But I think it's now generally accepted in the medical community uh, widely that uh, universal masking uh, is, is a key part of our uh, success and our strategy for uh, being successful. So to our, our listeners, would you suggest that if they're, you know, as, as we enter various phases around the country of, of opening up, uh, whether it be uh, you know, restaurants or, or stores, uh, would you recommend that in general, if they're in a public place, that, that they do have a mask on? Absolutely. And again, I would still recommend social distancing. I want that, that should be the first thing that they think of when they start planning what their social events are. We know it's healthy to get outside. People need to get outside. It's good for mind and body. Um, at the same time, social distancing is key. And then uh, masking when they're in any of those environments, it's it, it really it's about the maximum effective safety that we can provide them. What have you learned in terms of uh, treatment uh, of COVID? What's what's showing promising signs of, uh, you know, kind of halting progression or improving survival versus what might we have learned about some things that have that have not worked? Well, first with uh, medications, uh, initially we'd hoped that hydroxychloroquine uh, might be uh, an option, but that has since been proven not to be effective. And um, currently the only uh, drug that has uh, shown success in clinical trials has been Desivir. So from a, from a drug standpoint, that's obviously uh, in demand, that's uh, being used. But I think what we're also learning is a different approach to taking care of patients. Uh, the intensivists who are really on the forefront 
of treating COVID patients. Um, traditionally, they would use mechanical ventilation early uh, when there was failure in the lungs and uh, they would give lots of fluids. And what they've learned with COVID is that we try to pursue high oxygen states, uh, high flow rates first, and we keep the lungs very dry. The problem with keeping the lungs dry is that the kidneys, they like fluid. And so uh, there's a balance they have to maintain. So it can be very challenging for the intensivists. And, and certainly we, we are all incredible fans and appreciative of them and, and all of their efforts. No question about that, Dr. Metz. Um, well, as I mentioned before, I'd like to transition specifically to some of these patient questions and and maybe as a segue to what you just talked about in terms of, of therapies and um, and and prevention. There's a couple of questions here from patients that I think uh, actually blend in uh, pretty well to what you just spoke about. So, so the first is uh, from a patient who asks, uh, I'm taking immunotherapy to treat my cancer. Does that mean that my immune system is stronger and thus I'm less likely to get COVID-19? Unfortunately, it does not. Um, you know, uh, certain types of cancer, they attack the immune system and they turn a switch to deactivate our ability to fight cancer. So immunotherapy is often geared towards uh, deactivating the cancer's ability to deactivate the switch so that we can then attack the cancer. At the same time, immunotherapy can have a lot of uh, complications uh, and self and side effects, a lot of inflammation, inflammation in the lungs, inflammation in the gut. So, you know, it's it, it unfortunately does not uh, prevent COVID. It does not uh, treat COVID, um, but it's a it's a very uh, thoughtful question. It is. It is. And something somewhat kind of in a similar vein, a patient uh, sent in this question I have bladder cancer and I've received BCG as a part of my therapy. Uh, to what extent will that prevent me from getting COVID-19? There are a couple of trials that are underway exploring that, but to date we have not seen um, any evidence that BCG vaccine, often used for tuberculosis, um, is uh, effective at, um, at preventing COVID. Uh, some other really good questions from patients here. Uh, this one actually has to do with telehealth. Uh, the patient asks that, I know you've been offering some appointments via video conferencing technology, uh, and now that follow-up appointments can be done in person, uh, will you continue to offer telehealth visits? We haven't talked about telehealth. It's actually one of the best PPE barriers that exists. Telehealth's here to stay. Um, it allows us to optimize the patient visit when patients are here. Um, some visits require treatment and other visits are follow-up. So we can really optimize some of those follow-up visits and really focus the visits that need to be in person um, on treatment. Uh, telehealth is also gonna have a tremendous impact uh, in the community. All of these rural areas where it's difficult to get access to healthcare, where patients are, are facing diabetes, and uh, heart failure, high blood pressure, and obesity, all of these things that contribute to shortening the life, causing hospitalizations and, and things of that nature. Uh, telehealth can help us get access earlier and decrease the impact that those uh, diseases have on patients. So I think as a, as a nation, uh, we, we're gonna see telehealth here for a long time. That's terrific. And are there any things that you foresee uh, in terms of the 
that have happened or might happen in terms of the, the regulatory environment that might enable telehealth to, uh, to, you know, to be even more uh, prevalent and useful going forward? Yes, a significant relaxation in, in a lot of the regulations. Uh, it, it proves that when we're faced with an imminent danger, we can move quickly. You know, we have providers that can practice in between state lines now. Um, you know, we, we just we know we have the technology. We know we have the ability, and now we know we actually can cut through the red tape and make it happen. So it's a lesson that we all need to take. Um, and, and it's what patients need to demand. They should demand that they have access to healthcare, and this is a way to get them that access long term. Fantastic. Uh, a couple more uh, patient questions I wanted to make sure I got to here. Uh, this patient asked, I am participating in a clinical trial, but I'm not able to travel to my next scheduled appointment. What should I do? So each question like this has to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. I would highly recommend that the patient contact their cancer care treatment team so that they can work in, in a partnership and develop a plan that they can then follow. It's possible that they're a candidate for a telehealth visit, or it's possible that they can adjust their visits again so they can optimize the time spent together. And, and finally, in terms of a direct patient question, I think I'll, I'll choose this one. As a cancer survivor, is it safe to be out in public? Well, first, uh, for all cancer survivors, congratulations on being a cancer survivor. You inspire patients. You inspire the medical profession. Um, you're why we do what we do. And I would tell you it's essential that you get outside. Again, for, for health of mind and body, you know, uh, you have to get outside. You have to get out of your house. But you have to do it responsibly. You have to socially distance and you have to use a mask. You know, something that cancer patients are probably a lot more familiar with is the concept of immune, being immune compromised. And many of them have already had to do things that involve social distancing. They've had to miss important life milestones and, and weddings and graduations uh, because of where they are in their, in their fight. And many of them are alive to tell these stories now. And so I think it's important that we all listen to, to what they're saying, because as medical professionals, we can learn from them and, and other patients and other people out there that are learning about social distancing can also learn a lot from, from our cancer survivors. You and I do this because we, uh, we, we love uh, the care of, of cancer patients and this horrible disease. They are, as, as, as I'm sure you agree, some of the best, strongest, toughest patients in battling this disease. Can you um, give them some sense of, of what can they look forward to uh, during this? I, I think it's critical for cancer patients to have hope and keep their eyes, you know, down the line in terms of, um, you know, the optimism and hope. Can you share a, a message uh, for them that might give them some reasons to be optimistic? Yeah, I think so many of them have fought cancer and they've you know, gone through stages where they're in an immune compromised state and where they can't participate in that graduation or that wedding, that life milestone, and have had those disappointments. And a lot of uh, patients that we meet, they fight cancer so they can make it to those milestones. So as COVID comes out and takes a lot of those things away from them, it's it's really been on the one side, they're experienced. On the other side, they didn't want to be more experienced. And so I think it's important that they uh, know that we've made a tremendous amount of progress with a vaccine. We've never seen anything like it. We're, we're used to 
five to 15 years for a vaccine. And we're looking at a year with multiple um, uh, companies all participating and, and will likely have multiple vaccines. And it, by the beginning of 2021, we could be seeing hundreds of millions of vaccines distributed. So, you know, I, I hate to tell them to be patient. Um, instead, I'd say, let's be hopeful that if we're smart right now, and we take our time and we optimize social distancing and masking, that those milestones that we're all, you know, so socially engaged and in tune with are, are going to be coming back as we as we enter 2021. So thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to be on the show today and share uh, your expertise on a on a personal note. I'm extremely grateful to you for everything that you've been doing uh, to keep our patients and caregivers and employees uh, safe, uh, not only during the past few months of, uh, of, of this COVID-19 pandemic, but going forward, uh, you know, it's been really world-class uh, what you've done and we're very grateful. So thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for having me. On behalf of me and my entire team, we really appreciate the opportunity to serve our patients. Thank you. Please join me on the next episode. We're all welcome, Darren Keller a successful innovator and entrepreneur who will share his perspectives on advancement in cancer care and technology and other innovations that can help change the face of our battle against cancer.